it's funny you ask that. I mean, we, we have investors that are in our retail deals and also in our various storage funds. And when we sit down with them in the conference room or lately over Zoom, all they want to talk about is the retail deal and how the brewery's doing and how the restaurant's doing. And the next time we're going to get a happy hour with them there. Um, we show them pictures of storage facilities and they just kind of glaze over. So you're right. The uh, the appeal of it aesthetically is not what a cool adaptive reuse project would be or a ground up multi, multi-tenant, uh, multi-use infill deal would be what a year 2020 was 2021 is here and i hope you're hitting the ground running i know we are here at dwelling we've just got a deal on the contract we're going to be closing on soon for those that have joined us on that deal um you know what i'm talking about if you are saying what am i talking about then you need to take your investing game to the next level in this year so make sure you join the dwelling deal list, an exclusive deal list. Um, not only do you get access to our deals quickly, but you also get tips and tricks about you know how you can take your, your investing game to the next level this year. So if you are not on the dwelling deal list, click on the link in the show notes or just go to dwelling.com. Um, that's D-W-E-L-L-Y-N-N.com or just go to investwithola.com and just sign up, sign up, sign up, sign up. Thank you so much for joining us on The Dwelling Show. I'm your host, Ola Dantes. I've got Jacob here with us today, um, self-storage, you know, guy. I can't wait to, to you know, dive right into it with, with, with Jacob. We're, we're kind of talking before the show. So, hey, Jacob, thank you for joining the show today. Good afternoon, Ola. Thanks for having us on. We appreciate it. Yeah, no, definitely. Can't wait. I mean, I think we were just discussing um, a little bit about self-storage, but before we go into that, just kind of tell our folks, you know, a little bit more about who you are, um, kind of what you've been doing and kind of what you've been doing lately, actually. Yeah, we're, we're a real estate private equity shop based out of Denver. And uh, I've been investing in real estate full time for about 15 years. I got started doing single family fix and flips. We did a lot of those, uh, well over 1,200 over the years, all over the country, mainly in Denver, but covered a few markets. Um, then we added uh, commercial real estate into our various lines of business back in 13 and 14. Uh, we started doing adaptive reuse retail, so repurposing kind of tired old buildings around Denver into experience based retail buildings. And uh, we sold a number of those off and held on to others. We've done some residential development along the way. We'll do a few townhome projects uh, every couple of years. And then we got into self-storage in 2015. And we started off with ground-up development. We like the asset class because it's predictable and repeatable, uh, arguably recession-resistant based on the data we saw from the financial crisis. And uh, that, that theory is definitely holding water looking back at 2020 on, on how the asset class performed relative to others. And um, yeah, we started off in 15 with ground development and we expanded the footprint into the Midwest. Uh, we currently own 25 self-storage facilities in a variety of markets, um, anywhere from 25,000 feet to 110,000 feet. And um, we're, we're in acquisition mode right now. We launched another self-storage fund in December of 2020. And our, our thesis is to acquire existing facilities with good in-place cash flow and add value with uh, operational efficiencies and some capital improvements. So that's what we're up to. I love it. I mean, you said so many fantastic things um, that I like, and I want to, I want to dig right into it. So 
you started with single family, did some development. You and you mentioned the term, one of my favorite terms actually, adaptive reuse. Uh, you know, here at Dwelling, we actually were looking at converting a ten-story, um, you know, high-rise into multifamily, right? Just pre, just a few months before the lockdown. So I'm big on adaptive reuse. So actually, let's kind of talk about that, right? So you did adaptive reuse of, you know, re. Was it like from tired buildings into retail? What what was the conversion? Yeah, these are these are somewhat historic buildings, not historically designated, but I, I would say architecturally significant. And uh, you know, there was one option to tear them down and build sterile, sterile multifamily with ground floor retail, or repurpose the building and give it another hundred years of life. And uh, frankly, those are some of the more fun projects we've done. So one deal we did near downtown Denver. It's about uh, it's about eighteen thousand square feet. And it was a big white brick warehouse and the owner bought it for about 25 grand, I think in 1975. And he kept a very celebrated Porsche collection in the building for many, many years. This guy was one of the bigger Porsche collectors in the entire country. He had multiple 550 Spiders, um, like some of the most valuable cars you could imagine. So he was getting on in his years and he was uh, slowly selling off his car collection and he put the deal on the market. And it was completely original and we put a bunch of money into it and we demised the building into four different retail units. So we put a, an escape room concept in one with a, with a restaurant and bar inside of it as well. Then we did a brewery in the middle unit and the two other units, we did a, a restaurant, kind of a breakfast, lunch, dinner, bar, restaurant, and then a gym concept. So nice kind of experience-based retail and, uh, we have a few of those other buildings around town that are similar. Another is an old auto garage built in 1915. Uh, kind of a similar story there, a little bit smaller of a building. So those were those were fun deals to do. There's a there's a historic preservation component to it, um, and the the design is a lot more thoughtful versus building you know self storage for example. There's not a lot there's not not a lot that goes into it from an aesthetic perspective. So they were they were a blast to do. I bet. Yeah. Sounds yeah. really fascinating, actually. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. But I kind of go back to the, you said about 1200 fix and flip project. I mean, my God, that's a lot. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we, we've done a lot of single family. We, most of our deal flow, we historically have sourced from the trustee sales and that was kind of our single family area of expertise buying at the auctions with cashier's checks. And we had a drive team We'd pull title work uh, the day before to verify we're buying a first lien position. We'd back into our max bid figure and we'd show up with a, an inch stack of cashier's checks to multiple different auctions, uh, buy the deal, renovate it, and then either sell it or, or rent it out. So you guys pretty have a, a solid process, right? Doing this fix and flips, right? And you kind of churning almost like a, you know, manufacturing, you know, kind of process why stop why move to you know another asset because i'm kind of curious because you guys we, did this so well yeah the the buy fix and sell business in residential is very transactional and it's very tax inefficient and we we wanted to grow into a bigger asset class and kind of gravitate towards being more long-term cash flow investors versus only transactional buy stabilize and sell investors and we still do a little bit of that um, but by and large, the last two or three years, we've been really focused on a long-term stable asset base that uh, pays dividends every quarter. And buying and selling single-family residential is a good way to produce capital and create wealth, but it's very active and very transactional. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I mean, I just wanted. To... In addition to that, it's really hard to find deals the last couple of years. <laughs> I bet and Denver is more difficult than it's ever been. We a lot of our peers in the space are still able to source inventory in various markets, but uh, Denver has been. I mean, especially the last couple of months, we've had just historically low inventory, and it's really tough to find any kind of arbitrage out there. Yeah, I bet, and yeah, like I was telling before the show, like I've been to Denver, and you know. Um, a lot of folks from Denver are just just really, you know, struggling to find inventory. So isn't that also like, you know, a gap in the market, right? For you guys to maybe say, go, you know, buy some plot of land outside of Denver, you know, build a bunch of, you know, ground up, you know, single family homes. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, we, we've considered doing that. We haven't done any raw land development as it relates to subdivisions. And we might consider that doing that at some point, but we're, we're hyper-focused on storage. We occasionally do infill attached townhome residential developments. We just completed a six unit project. We're working on a 35 unit project. We did a 10 unit project a couple of years ago. Uh, but the only deals we do there are deals in our backyard and, and sub markets that we really understand. We have a good contractor base, a good architect, a good brokerage firm. So it's kind of rinse and repeat, but that's not a line of business. We're looking to scale a whole lot. It's just kind of more on the side. And when we find deals, it makes sense. Right. So what actually makes sense and what you guys have evolved into is self-storage, right? So my first question about self-storage is why isn't the same sex appeal, <laughs> you know, like we see in like multifamily, which is what we do and apartments and, you know, why, why yeah. isn't that with, with the big boxes, right? With, with self-storage. I'm kind of curious. Yeah, it's it's funny you ask that. I mean, we, we have investors that are in our retail deals and also in our various storage funds. And when we sit down with them in the conference room or lately over Zoom, all they want to talk about is the retail deal and how the brewery's doing and how the restaurant's doing. And the next time we're going to get a happy hour with them there, um, we show them pictures of storage facilities and they just kind of glaze over. So you're right. The uh, the appeal of it aesthetically is not what a cool adaptive reuse project would be or a ground up multi, multi-tenant, uh, multi-use infill deal would be. But, but even though it's not a beautiful asset class, it's very sustainable and it's predictable and it's weathered uh, two pretty, pretty big storms quite nicely. And we mainly like the cash flow aspect of it. And it, it produces more net income in our theory than, uh, than multifamily does today. And we love multifamily. We love workforce housing. And I wish we would have done more of it years ago. We thought the market was getting kind of long in the tooth and we were wrong. It just kept going and kept going. But uh, you're, you're right. It's certainly not uh, as fun to talk about as some of those cooler asset classes are. Yeah. So the other thing we spoke about, which I, I kind of want to touch on is, you know, you know grew up in London and I'm going to be of a minimalist, even digitally, I, I don't like getting too much email. So, you know, the idea that people are paying for an extra space, you know, just to put stuff into it's like well, every time I drive past like a storage place and it's huge, I'm like, I, I just can't get it. What, what are the main drivers of, of these big boxes? Yeah, it's it's a uniquely American asset class. You don't you don't go overseas and see uh, massive multi-story self-storage units. I mean, it's limited to the states, Canada. Uh, there's a couple of deals in Puerto Rico as well. Extra spaces down there. They're a big operator. Um, but Americans just need extra places to keep their stuff. And 
no matter how big of a house you buy, you fill it up with stuff. You still need extra room to put your gear in, your Christmas decorations, your seasonal gear. Um, people just like that kind of out of the house area to put their stuff in. I've, I've got a storage unit and we have an owner user office building here in Denver and we've got our office upstairs, which is where I am now. And we have self-storage downstairs and I have a unit down there and I pay, our, I pay rent to ourselves. And in the unit, I've got family heirloom furniture that I don't want in my house, but I can't get rid of because it's sentimental. And I've got my mountain bikes and my skis and my golf clubs and my camping gear and all my seasonal stuff. And uh, I'll probably pay a hundred bucks a month on that for the foreseeable future, just to have that convenience of not having all that stuff pile up in my garage. And that's, a, that's what a lot of our customer base wants. We have a number of uh, business customers that are contractors, Maybe they sell stuff online. They have to keep their inventory somewhere outside their house. Um, really, the, the demand drivers and storage in general are people moving up and down the economic ladder. So getting married, getting divorced, losing jobs, gaining jobs, uh, corporate relocations, whatever it might be. Any kind of kind of life, life disruption event is a self-storage demand driver. And we've seen a lot of those, obviously, the last year. Yeah, fascinating. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So sure. if yeah, if I'm a you know just someone thinking, wow, okay, never ever thought about you know self storage. I mean, how do I get started in in this kind of business, or you know, how can I invest with you know a self storage provider like yourself? Like, what what does that process look like? Yeah, there, I mean, there's two ways to get in the business. If you want to be an owner operator, you have to go out and kind of understand the business, buy a deal, learn to operate it. And if you want to invest in self-storage, but not deal with all the headaches, there's a lot of shops like ours that do funds and syndications backed by self-storage as an asset class. Um, if you, we'll, we'll kind of cover the uh, owner-operator piece first. If, we're, if you want to get in the business, but operate it yourself, one of the first things you got to look for is a market that has favorable supply ratios. Self-storage is very local supply sensitive. So we track supply ratios in the one, three and five mile trade radius. Nationally, there's about seven square feet per capita of self-storage. And that seems to be kind of the sweet spot that's, that's kind of evenly supplied. Once you get up to eight, nine, 10 square feet per capita, you start to see a decline in rates and occupancy. And once you're underneath that, you see a little more buoyant occupancy and higher rates. So you want to be in a market that's got a low supply ratio with um, an arguably low risk of new competition. And maybe low risk of new competition could be that land, land costs are too expensive, uh, entitlement's difficult, maybe the municipality you're looking at is averse to self-storage development, they don't, they don't want new facilities going up. So there's, uh, try to find a place with a, with a story with kind of a more finite supply. And on the operation side, uh, if you have a small enough facility, you can probably operate it without a full-time staff member in place. The technology out there today allows customers to lease their units online, make their payments online, move in. You still need a repair and maintenance person and a quality control person to check on the facility and solve any problems that might happen, do repairs. Um, but you can get away with, if it's small enough, being able to staff it without a full-time staff member. Your other option is if you go out and buy a deal yourself, you can hire a third-party management company and there's a lot of them out there. And just like multifamily, they'll charge you a management fee. Typically in storage is about it's about five to 6% of your gross receipts. So it'll cost you, but they'll run the day-to-day -day operations and hopefully you just collect the checks. Um, if you wanna invest passively, uh, there's really two types of deals out there right now. There's uh, single asset syndications where a sponsor will raise capital for one acquisition 
and operate that deal, make distributions from one LLC, and then eventually sell it. And there are fund structures, and really a fund is basically a syndication, but with a collection of assets versus just one. And the fund structure, to a degree, the disadvantage is if you come in early in a fund, the fund may buy deals and markets that you're not too excited about. You don't have a lot of control over that. But the advantage to a fund structure really is asset and geographic diversification. So inevitably, in a, on a 10 property fund, maybe two deals don't perform as well as the fund manager hoped they would, but the other eight do. And those kind of prop up the two deals that might be a little bit slower from a cash flow or occupancy perspective. So there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, if you want to make the most money, but also spend the most time, the way to go is being, being an owner operator and buying your own deal. And if you want to make a good return, but with a very high ROI on your time, not as high uh, of a gross dollar return as being an owner operator, your best option is probably to invest in a fund or syndication if you want exposure to the asset class. I'm kind of curious, you know, we're underwriting, you know, bunch of, you know, bunch of deals day in, day out. And, you know, the, the expense ratio for us is, you know, at least 50%, right? <laughs> Running an apartment building. Yep. What is that number for self-storage? It's a little bit lighter and the expense ratios vary based on the property tax environment. We're in a few states like Michigan and Illinois with very high property taxes. And those can kind of falsely overstate our total OPEX. In general, in self-storage, you're looking around 45%. You could maybe run them as lean as 40, depending on your property taxes. But the expense load is a bit lighter than multifamily. It's a little less um, repair and maintenance intensive as multifamily. And in an apartment building, you've got... 100 showers and 100 toilets and self-storage, you might have one toilet and no shower. Um, so it's a little bit more inexpensive to operate. And that's kind of why the OPEX is later. Fascinating. So why don't we talk about maybe one of the deals as a case study? You know, how do you guys find the deal? Um, I'm guessing the funds, you know, how did you fund the deal or kind of what structure you used? And just like a little bit of a story of the deal, just to kind of give us a, a full kind of start to finish. And if you've gone full cycle, that'd be great. Yeah, we, there's two ways we find deals. Uh, the, the first way we applied a lot of our single family marketing techniques to self-storage sellers. And we did a direct mail ca campaign a couple of years ago and we placed about $10 million off of probably $5,000 in mail. So that worked out well. And it was basically a direct mail piece. It was a business letter uh, mailed to self-storage owners saying, hey, we're not brokers, we're owners, we're buyers. We'd love to make you an offer on your facility. You might be surprised with how much we can pay you. So we got a number of leads from there and we closed two deals, one that made about 2 million and one at 8 million. And the other way we source deals is uh, broker relationships. So we have a number of brokers that we're close with in the self-storage community. We'll occasionally get deals before they hit the market. I hate using the term off market because off market can sometimes mean it's not a good deal. Uh, but we have bought a number of off-market portfolios that we thought were pretty good deals. Um, we've stepped in on a few off-market deals where another buyer bailed and we were able to come in at a lower price with a faster close and get control of it. And then we occasionally buy deals that are listed and they might be listed inefficiently. Maybe they're listed on the residential MLS in a given sub-market versus on the commercial MLS like CoStar. Um, so yeah, just broker networking and uh, some direct-to-seller marketing is mainly how we source deals. Awesome. That, that is so fascinating that you guys just, you know, were able to get this $2 million and $8 million deal just by deploying $5,000 of, you know, marketing dollars. That's yeah, very remarkable. Yeah, it's a good ROI for sure. It was a lot better of an ROI than our, than our single family direct mail. I bet. Uh, yeah. I bet. 
Yeah. As far as the case study goes, um, we, you know, we've done development and self-storage. Uh, we've bought deals that are newer self-storage, but empty. Like for example, a seller repositioned an industrial building into self-storage and we bought it when it was completed, but with no revenue in place. Generally, the last couple of years, we're only acquiring facilities that are already self-storage and that already have meaningful occupancy. So one example, we bought a deal in the Florida Panhandle um, about two years ago. At the time, it was really inefficiently managed. The owner did not have a website. There was no marketing in place. Customer service was bad. We bought it at about 60% occupancy and brought it up as of today. I think we're around 81%. And we've started pushing through rate increases. So as far as the cap rate goes, it depends on the type of deal. We could potentially buy a deal at a very low in-place cap rate because that deal has very far below market rents and maybe above market expenses. Like maybe we could buy a deal at a four cap and have it up to a seven and a half cap within 18 months or two years, just with more efficient revenue management. So I would say by and large though, our, our typical acquisition is maybe a a going in six cap with a, with a goal to get it up to an eight to an eight and a half yield on cost within three years. That's kind of our sweet spot, about a 200 basis point spread between acquisition, yield on cost and stabilized. Makes sense. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can keep going on and on on, on self-storage, but we're definitely, definitely dwelling into the quick rounds. These are going to be quick questions, quick answers. You ready, sir? Sounds good. First question, what makes you unique? Um, what is that differentiating factor that separates you from the next guy or the next girl? We are strategically agnostic and some entrepreneurs will say, focus on one thing, get really good at it. We're mainly focused on self-storage, but if we see opportunities elsewhere, uh, we can make those work and we'll, we'll take advantage of them. So we're not, uh, we're not stuck in one lane. I like that. I like that. Second question, what was the last book that you read and what was the one thing that you picked up from that book? Let's see here. I am reading a book right now. Uh, it's almost done, so I'm going to say that I've read it. It's called The Splendid in the Vile uh, by a writer named Eric Larson. And it's a, it's a kind of a biography about Winston Churchill during the early war years. And uh, Churchill is a fascinating historic figure. And I know he's got some controversy, but the way that guy led the country during some very unknown times. Uh, I mean, the British thought, and you, you probably know Churchill well, obviously being from the UK, but um, the British thought they were gonna get annihilated by the Germans. And having a leader step in to motivate the people, encourage them, um, rally them around, you know, we're not gonna give in, we're not gonna surrender, we're not, we're not gonna cut a deal through Mussolini. Um, it was just, it was, it was very inspirational. Just lots of, lots of good leadership vignettes and uh, you know how to how to lead a team uh, during during times of adversity. It's it's, it's a great book. Not done yeah. yet. Almost there. Sounds fascinating. I got to check that out. I don't think I read yeah. that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's fairly it's fairly recent. It probably came out in the last maybe six months. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Final question. You've got your business. You obviously you're busy. You've got the family. What do you do for fun? Well, I haven't had as much fun lately. We were we were talking before we started recording. I've got two boys that are two and one who are fun by themselves. And then I've got my, my business. So not a lot of extracurricular activity, especially with COVID. Um, but during normal times, I, uh, I fly airplanes for fun. That's one of my favorite things to do. I've been doing that since I was in high school. Um, I play a lot of golf, I ski, I, I do mountain climbing, and uh, I'm also a bourbon collector. 
and my collection is not as big as it should be because I end up drinking most of it. But uh, I've got a few bottles that I'm not ever going to touch. Um, so beyond that, playing with the kids, hanging out with the wife, and uh, you know, the kids and the, and the job are the fun hobbies by themselves. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if there's anybody maybe in the Denver market or maybe anywhere else in the country, maybe they're looking at maybe investing in the next fund that you guys are coming up with or just want to connect with you, where's the best place people can reach out, get to know you better? Yeah, whether you're considering investing or not, we love to connect with people. There's there's always something to do with a new connection. Um, they could hit me up on uh, email at jacob at vanwestpartners.com or LinkedIn at Jacob Vanderslice or go to our website, which is vanwestpartners.com. Jacob, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Well, I enjoyed the conversation. You may have heard the phrase, there are a thousand ways to make a thousand dollars in real estate. Well, now you can actually tune into the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast with over a thousand, believe it, or a thousand podcasts and still going. The best real estate investing advice ever show is hosted by a very good friend of mine, Joe Fellers. Joe talks to influential thought leaders who share their best advice ever with none of the fluff. You've got to check this stuff out. So listen and subscribe at bestevershow.com. That's bestevershow.com.